Well, here we are at the end of what has been a terrific Australian Open in Melbourne. Two weeks of real intensity, excitement, a whole lot of shocks and a whole lot more besides. And uh, along with me, Barry Milnes and uh, my partner in crime, Barry Cowan, we've been joined today from Melbourne by uh, Peter McCarter, who's uh, the Australian broadcaster and tennis journalist, and also by the former British number one and now a major pundit on the sport, Annabelle Croft. Annabelle, great to have you with us. Um, have you Thank recovered you. yet from all the excitement, all the drama? Just about. I have to say, I think it's been one of the most brilliant Grand Slams that I've covered in a number of years. And it just seemed that every day, from the moment we had that amazing match with Andy Murray and Bautista Agu, and then the kind of um, strange goings on on centre court when we weren't quite sure whether Andy Murray had definitely announced his retirement or not. But from that moment on, the stories just kept coming. The matches were amazing. And from a broadcasting perspective, we were kept up until sometimes two or three in the morning. You know, So it was... Um, you know, it was just extraordinary. It was so much great tennis and, as I said, so many great things to talk about. Exactly. And I think, uh, Peter, you obviously had a, a lot of late nights as well. It's, it's been very intense over the fortnight. But let's start our recap by, by talking about what was really a, a Djokovic masterpiece against Nadal. What did you make of all that? Well, I can tell you, yes, I'm still recovering. This is going to take me weeks to recover from like <laughs> a sleep over the last 14 days, let me tell you. But Steamrolled. Unbelievable. I thought this was going to be a tight match. I thought it was going to go the distance. I thought it was going to be similar to 2012 where they played for what seemed like three days. But it wasn't the case. And why Why should it be with the way that Djokovic is playing and the way he played last year as well? The last six months of last year got back to number one in the world. And we got a sense in that opening game or the opening couple of games as to how this one was going to be played out because... Nadal, he didn't necessarily play a bad match. And Djokovic just controlled things right from the very start. He served so well, losing only a handful of points on his serve across the three sets. And he's a worthy champion. It was just extraordinary. Baza, you obviously have been watching closely with me what's been going on. And uh, we were all anticipating something perhaps a, a bit closer than it was. But uh, what impressed you the most about Djokovic? His composure, his decision-making... And as he admitted after the match, the, the incredible victory performance, almost uh, the, the plan was, I'm going to come to get you early. I'm going to hit you hard. And he sort of demoralized Nadal, which is not easy to do, given how well Rafa has been playing and some of the best tennis we've seen. But I think the, the biggest difference, and, and we taught Barry, didn't, didn't we, leaning up to the final, was that Djokovic has had tougher matches in the last six to eight months where as well as Nadal has played, he hasn't really been tested. And I think Nadal touched on that a little bit. So for Djokovic, it was just the most complete performance. And I always find and uh, feel that in, in matches like that, ultimately, it's the longer rallies. If you can get under Nadal's skin and win those longer rallies, which Djokovic most certainly did, he uh, over nine shots, he won 22, did Novak and Rafa only seven. So for Rafa, he was left one thinking... What else can I do? I mean, you know, your plan A, plan B, plan C, plan D. I'm trying that. And that's not working. For Djokovic, just, just that was complete performance. Amazing now, Annabelle, that uh, Novak has won his last 17 sets on hard courts against Rafa. I mean, this is against mm. Rafael Nadal. He hasn't <laughs> lost to Roger Federer for four years either. So, I mean, is he now the preeminent player, the player who's going to dominate, do you see, over the next few years? 
Oh, well, it certainly seems that way. I mean, I think everybody here was just a little bit in shock, to be honest, because of the performance and the level or seemingly level difference between the world and the world number two. And I agree with, uh, with, with all of you that I think Rafa just looked as if he just was lost out there and it sort of was a bad start for him. I think he was very nervous at the start and he really wasn't allowed to play whatever tactics he had brought onto the court. I mean, Novak's depth, his precision, his clinical ball striking. I even felt like there were other layers that he could have gone into. Uh, and it also seemed like psychologically he'd already beaten Rafa when they walked out onto court. And for me, it, you know, we talked so much about the change of technique in um, Nadal's serve. Was that going to save him that fraction of a time when Novak was going to attack into that forehand side? You know, the improvements on the backhand. But we didn't even get a chance to see any of it. And the more I felt, the more shackled... Nadal was uh, and he wasn't playing with freedom he started to put a lot more spin on the ball the ball just wasn't doing anything it wasn't doing any damage and he looked a little bit in shock to be honest I, I don't think anybody predicted what was um, unfolding out on that court last night it was extraordinary as a little boy, he was inspired by watching Pete Sampras winning uh, his first Wimbledon title back in 1993. That's when Novak was only six years of age. But obviously from there, he has now gone past Sampras himself. He's gone to 15 major titles. He's just two adrift of Nadal. He's just five behind Roger Federer. One of the great pictures that's come out of Melbourne was him standing with the Aussie legends, uh, Roy Emerson and Rod Laver, also Ken Rosewell and Frank Sedgment. He, he knows his place in history now. Is he going to be ultimately the one who wins the most? Do you, do you guys sense that? Do you feel that it's within his uh, range to do that? Well, if he stays fit, I think is the main thing. Because, you know, I think we were sort of saying a couple of years ago that he was heading towards this marker and he was going to, be, you know, be the best of the lot coming through in terms of winning majors. But then his body started letting him down. If his body does stay fit, then, you know, even the French, which we sort of all pretty much give to Rafael Nadal each and every year, you know, is within range for him. We saw what he did at Wimbledon last year in the US Open. I mean, if he can just keep himself right, then, yeah, that, that's a big chance because he's got to make the most of his time now, I think. Now that he is back to top form, he's back dominating at the very top of the men's game, uh, this is the time to be able to cash in on that. I think Paris will be really interesting. He's going to set himself for a massive campaign. He wants to go out and win that title. He wants to get the, the Grand Slam collection again. Um, yeah, but I think now is the time to be able to do it if he's going to do it, and I think he will. What do you think, Annabelle? Yeah, I sort of feel the same way. I mean, I was sitting there watching that match last night and just everybody who was in that sort of media and broadcast area was sort of going, oh, my goodness, you know, he's going to be the one to beat at Wimbledon and the French Open. He is going to get the bit, bit between his teeth. And he looked unstoppable. And I think the period of time where he went a little bit wayward um, for what was it, you know, 18 months, almost two years, to be honest. Um, it's almost been probably good for him. And he's re-sort of calibrated, as he often says. And it seems as if he's taking his, his level and his enjoyment back to a new level. But uh, maybe it's down to the celery juice because... He puts, <laughs> That's <laughs> where we're all going wrong. Exactly. He put some Instagrams up midway through the week and he said, I'm going to let you all into a little secret. Uh, uh, celery juice is what I take on board every single uh, morning before he puts anything else into his body. And I thought, oh, I might give this a try. So at the hotel, they had... Um, 
a juicer here. I have to say, celery juice is utterly disgusting if you can't put it with um, <laughs> ginger and apple. But it certainly gets your system going. So whatever it is with this celery juice, I think yesterday when I watched him out on court, I thought, right, I might have to try and start doing celery juice every morning because if it gives us some rocket fuel like he had yesterday, it might be worth it. And, and the movement, I mean, I almost never thought I'd ever say it, but he seems to be moving even better. I mean, some of the stretches and the recoveries and the balls he was able to get back into play, but not just in the middle of the court with interest. I just think every time I look at him play, when he's in that kind of mode and he's locked in and dialed in mentally, um, he looks so balanced on the court and it all looks so easy and effortless and he has so much time on the ball. And I think that's the biggest difference when a player is in that kind of zen-like state, as we saw yesterday. Um, you know, that movement is absolutely superb. And it's, you know, it's the opposite for what was happening with Nadal, wasn't it? Nadal looked rushed. He looked like he was in a defensive position. Nadal likes to dictate the play with the forehand and he likes to get that forehand up high into the backhand side. But we couldn't see any of that yesterday. And I've never seen Rafa being run ragged. And then the use of the drop shots, you know, just almost being toyed with and pulled, pulled apart on the end of a piece of string. But you're right, you know, movement-wise... Djokovic just looked absolutely unstoppable. I think for Rafa, though, it's easier for him to get over yesterday. He can almost say, well, actually, what a bonus it was for, for, for me to get to the final, given how little tennis that he played, because he hadn't, we hadn't seen him since the US Open, where Djokovic has been relentless in the last six or seven months. So I think for Rafa now, that say, well, if I can get a good run going, in my opinion, he's still the favourite right now for the French Open. Djokovic needs to put two a couple of markers down before Roland Garros. I think Djokovic needs to beat him um, in, in one of the lead-up tournaments, Monte Carlo, Madrid or Rome. But it's certainly going to be fascinating. And the pressure is going to only but build, isn't it, for Djokovic? Already people are talking about can he emulate Rod Laver and win two, two career slams. From Djokovic, though, top of the pile. He's cemented his place uh, at the top of the rankings once again. Now he's over 2,500 points clear of Rafa. And then we turn to the women's side of things, Annabelle, and Naomi Osaka is world number one and a two-time Grand Slam champion. What a story. What a story. I mean, just an extraordinary uh, performance throughout the tournament, to be honest, because there were a couple of moments where she was in trouble. Um, Distinctly, I remember that match with Shea Su Wei, where she was all over the place and she was really struggling with rhythm. It just wasn't going her way. She was finding the way that Shea Su Wei plays her tennis so tricky with her mix of slices and little drop shots. She, she almost dismantled Osaka. And there was one particular backhand that was a standout backhand. She was down break point to go 5-3 down in the second set. So almost out of the tournament. And she hit an absolutely stonking backhand winner up the line on this break point and turned the match from that moment on and um you know and then she went from strength to strength but she she battled you know and the week before i'd been commentating a, a sorry commentating on a match against serenka in brisbane and she'd called her coach out onto court sasha bajan she was having a little bit of a meltdown a bit of a sulk on the court and she was saying to him i can't play tennis and he kind of allowed her to get her strop out of the way she ended up losing that match she went into the press room she apologized for her behavior she said i've been very childlike on the court i need to grow up a bit but this has been a really steep learning curve for me and i think it's going to hold me in good stead going forward well and i didn't look back it. at that now my goodness how much did that help her because she certainly wasn't one of my picks after having what I'd wit witnessed, what I'd seen in Brisbane. And then by the end of it, I thought, you know what? 
she probably needed that loss. Sometimes that can happen in tennis. You need an, a loss early in the week before to really galvanize your thoughts going forward into a slam. And I think everybody just loves the way she plays. I mean, she's very quirky in the press conferences. She's a little bit different. She says different things in the press conferences. She makes them laugh. It's a long time since I've seen one of the women tennis players really make the media laugh in there. And, um, you know, I think people have warmed her, particularly after what happened at the US Open. I think everyone was thrilled that here she was backing it up, which is a long time since we've seen that, isn't it? Yes, but what you're saying is so true, I think, about the, the experience in Brisbane, how that... She had to go through that to do what she did in Melbourne and particularly in the final to have the, the, the loss of those championship points in the second set to be upset, to be in a bit of a sulk, but to go off the court and at the age of just, what, 21, to have the poise that, to find it within her to turn that around, to, as she said, almost block out the emotion, to put herself in that kind of trance-like state to go through the final set. I mean, that was just an absolutely a, a revelation yeah. I think, of, of what she's got within it, it her. It was. And I think there were moments where you thought she was teetering on the brink and there were tears in her eyes. And you thought, oh, my goodness, how is she going to be able to recompose herself? Because to have had that situation where the, you know, this Grand Slam title was within one point and uh, she just couldn't nail it and then, you know, went into free fall. But to have met, you know, to have found a way to recompose herself was extraordinary. And then once she got flowing again, I mean, the ball striking is so beautiful. I mean, I remember Barry pointing her out to me a few years ago and she's just got such explosive power, but there's work on the ball. You know, it sort of has what we call cover on the ball. So it's explosive power mm-hmm. with some control. Uh, and the serve does so much damage. And also she threatens on the second serve so much. And she moves beautifully for someone who's actually, she's quite tall considering, you know, when she, you could her on TV, she doesn't look tall, but she's about five foot nine, I think. And um, she really threatens the second serve, really stonks those returns. She stands in about a metre. Forehand is huge when it's firing. And the backhand, as I said, is just a beautiful strike. And, um, you know, when you watch her in full flow, it, it's beautiful. And you kind of think, wow, what can she go on and, and do? She, she might well end up sort of dominating for a number of years. Peter, I was going to ask you, what has Sasha Bajin done to turn from hitting partner Serena and Azarenka to become, you know, highest, highly established and well-respected coach? The brilliant job he's done now with Osaka. The fact that he's been able to work with the personality is a, a big, big plus for this. You talk about that situation in Brisbane and then going into the final here where there's no on-court coaching and being able to regroup and to be able to build that belief. Obviously, Naomi already had the talents, but there was obviously tinkering that needed to be done with the game, which you know he was able to do. And when you've worked, I suppose, with high-profile athletes, you get a sense of what their mannerisms are and and how they're going to react to certain situations, but it's going away and doing the hard work. I I tend to agree. I agree with Annabelle. You know, in terms of dominating the women's game, it's important, I think, on both sides to have figureheads right at the very top that's going to bring new people into the sport. And certainly in Japan, I don't think the celebrations have ended quite yet, but we could see a a period here where it is so open on the women's tour, a real opportunity, and she showed some real maturity that befits a new world number one. Well, Petra Kvitova is a very capable number two in the world now again, isn't she? And obviously that was a, a, well, a heartwarming story for the way that she has come back from such adversity, Annabelle. Uh, do you see her sort of tilting with um, Osaka for the number one ranking over the next season? Um, 
I think so. I think, um, you know, she has such an exciting game. I've always loved how Petra Kvitova plays her tennis. I mean, when she's on fire, she is unstoppable and she can make the game look so, so easy. You know, effortless power, that lefty serve, which has got so much choice on it. You know, I, we always talk, it's such a cliche about the, the lefty serve swinging out wide on the on the ad side. But also what I loved watching was the way she'd swing it into the forehands of right-handed players. And even on the juice court, she swings it away. I mean, Barry's a lefty, so he'll know about this, how much damage they can do to a right-handed player. But, you know, I love the way she uses her serve. And then that first strike into the corner. And, um, you know, she looks so much fitter these days. Everybody was talking about how um, mm. you know, supremely fit she was. And also, she's such a nice girl. You know, the, the talk around the media centre was, you know, a lot of warmth towards Petra Gravitova because she's... Uh, incredibly humble considering she's won two Wimbledon titles um she's very nice to everybody she's got a lovely manner about her she's very open and uh, honest in her press conferences and of course there's that emotion that comes behind it I mean Jim Courier did a wonderful interview with her on Centre Court which reduced her to tears when she was sort of uh, you know couldn't speak for a few moments because she was you know recollecting what had happened to her with that awful intruder and the fact that the surgeons had probably given her not much hope to be able to ever pick up a racket so here she was standing on the brink of yet another grand slam title so it was an incredible story and um you know you don't want to see the sadness at the end of it because i think she was pretty gutted when she didn't win but um made a beautiful speech and i think you know i have to say you know, top marks to all of them. I think uh, they both came out on on top as as winners at the end of that her, championship. Her time will come, though, won't it? Again, to to lift a, a Grand Slam trophy. I think so. I mean, I think at Wimbledon on the grass courts with the way that she's been playing and getting her act together again in slams, because of course she did quite well in main tour events last year, but didn't do quite so well in the slams. I think she's kind of put that behind her. But I think put that game with the level that she produced here in Australia onto a grass court, it's even more devastating. You know, less time for opponents to react to that first strike tennis, less time to react to that uh, serve. So, yeah, I think she's going to be right up there, you know, in with a shot at winning, um, certainly at Wimbledon, that's for sure. But, of course, we can't write off Serena Williams either with her, her game on the grass courts. You know, we're all wondering where she's at because it, it, it was quite strange with what happened to her on the court against Pliskova. It was something that we'd never witnessed before. But I think we're all, you know, there's a big few question marks. You can't write her off. And we know that the motivation is there to win 24. But um, where is she going to be at going forward? Okay, guys, we've had a, a good look back at the, the weekend and what a weekend of tennis it was. Just looking back over the whole tournament, I'll ask you first, Peter, pick out uh, another highlight for us, uh, something that really stood out for you on the court and perhaps something off the court as well. Oh, off the court was the, uh, the, the, the way that Melbourne Park is still being transformed. We have the new player pod uh, this year, which the players have all raved about, uh, part of that new redevelopment that's going on. We've had record attendances again. I didn't think that would be possible after the last couple of years that we've had, but they've done well to not only make it a, a tennis tournament, but it's also an entertainment event too, and there's so much happening around. Not that I got to see any of it, but I've heard good things <laughs> about it. Um, in terms of on-the-court sort of stuff, I, I, the question, particularly on the men's side, was about the next gen and sort of the impact that they could could make. And we saw Sitsipas make his way through to the semi-finals, but struggled against Nadal. Francis Tiafo making a step forward, disappointing again. Sasha Zverev, uh, the pressure continues to build on him, uh, you know, in the majors. 
And on the women's side, I guess from a purely an Australian perspective, was some of these young Australian players starting to make their mark, coming through qualifying, getting wild cards, winning rounds. And it was great to see we had plenty of Australian representation in the second week, which doesn't often happen these days. No, and Ash Barty obviously doing a, a wonderful job. And, and, and then in, in the doubles, um, John Pierce, uh, runner-up in, in the men's, and Sam Stoza with uh, Zhang Shui winning the women's. Yeah, and we had uh, a couple of young Gurr players, Astra Sharma and J.P. Smith, in the final of the mixed doubles as well. So mm-hmm. Dylan Alcott won the, the quad wheelchair singles and the doubles. So, You're rubbing it you know, in now, nice Peter. representation. Absolutely. <laughs> I could keep going forever, Baz. <laughs> Annabelle, from a British point of view, it all kicked off, of course, with the whole Murray story yeah. and then the match that he had against Bautista are good. And, and we'll all, I think we'll all savour the way he, he did drag it out one more time to, to perform in the way that we've seen him do so brilliantly over the years. But in terms of the rest of the Brits, it was a pretty quiet event, wasn't it? What are, what are your thoughts now with Murray's sort of retirement looming? Um, yeah, I mean, I did stay up. I mean, we were broadcasting the Joe Conta match with Garbina Muguruza, and I just couldn't believe that they were playing this incredible tennis match at whatever it was, 2.30 in the morning, and just yes. going hammer and tong at each other. It was a wonderful, wonderful contest. And I think Joe almost a little bit unlucky because it went right down to the wire. It was so close. Muguruza just pipped her at the post. But, uh, you know, it was a shame that more spectators in the, I think it was the Margaret Court Arena, weren't able to enjoy it at that time in the morning. And it was just such an utterly ridiculous time to expect athletes to produce their best tennis. But I have to say, they put aside the, the early hours of the morning that they were playing it at and, and came out and produced a, a fantastic piece of entertainment. But uh, So that was interesting. I thought... Um, Katie Bolter actually played pretty well. I thought she showed very encouraging signs. Uh, you know, she had a very good win over Makarova, and I thought actually she's she's really improved an enormous amount. She possesses a big serve, big game. I can I can see quite a lot of influence of Jeremy Bates, where he's sort of trying to get her to move forward quite a bit. She's a tall girl, so she was finishing a lot of points at the net, improving her slice back end. So I thought actually. Katie could could have a good run in 2019 and particularly on the grass and courts she, I think that she might be quite dangerous and she now knows all about um, 10 point tie breaks was that a success guys <laughs> do you think that was a good thing for Australian I, Open to have I this think year? so absolutely I mean all the, the chat and talk leading into it oh it's not going to be great for 10 I think it added an extra dimension really particularly when you go back to uh, Karenia Booster and Ishikori the controversy mm, yes. that that had you know we had that match went, went five hours. So I think that was enough tennis for everyone. Um, you know, you don't want to have those sort of 2018 sort of score lines where 10 of those games are just straight hold to serve to love, um, where we just go through the motions, if you like. I think it had an extra dimension. I don't think it made any difference whatsoever. In fact, it, it may have helped Ishikori, you know, because if he had been out there for a couple of, uh, you know, hours longer, then that match against Djokovic probably wouldn't have happened. Now, it didn't really happen anyway, but I think it's going to help players into the future, and that's what we want as an entertainment product. Off court, there was yeah. a little bit of a spat, wasn't there, with Jamie Murray and Dan Evans? What was made of it over there in Melbourne, especially in the, in the press area, Annabelle? Um, I think we, yeah, everyone was a little bit shocked by that because we don't know where that came from. But uh, it was a real spat. But we felt like Britain was rivaling Australia because, of course, there'd been all that talk about the Davis <laughs> Park and <laughs> Hewitt and all the goings on. It's like a soap opera over here with that. And we kind of did our best to kind of rival that in Britain. But um, 
you know, Jamie really kind of put his foot down, didn't he? And went into mm. the press conferences and said what he had to say about it and totally disagreed with Dan. And then there was a lot of people coming out. And even since then, I've seen a few more ripples to do with his doubles as, it, you know, I think Jack Socker said something about if he wasn't able to play singles and he only played doubles, he wouldn't be playing tennis. And people were saying, oh, well, mm-hmm. that kind of answers that argument. But um it is an interesting one. I mean, I'm not quite sure why Dan did choose to, to say what he said because obviously they are going to be teammates in the next Davis Cup tie. And it just kind of, I suppose it gets everybody's, uh, you know, tongues wagging and, you mm. know, it spices things up a little bit. But it certainly, it, I'd love to be a fly on the wall in some of those team talks behind the scenes, that's for sure. In terms of the overall Australian Open, I, I remember the days when it was very much perceived as the poor relation. You go back to the sort of the 1970s and, and many of the leading players perhaps wouldn't make the trip. It was is definitely sort of second division compared to the other slams. But now look at it. I mean, every winning speech, every runners up speech talking about it as being the best. Players slam. say that every what week. You though, make of that, they? guys. Well, I'm biased, so I'll jump in first uh, because it's obviously at home for me. But in terms of onward and upward and obviously, you know, having a bit to do with Tennis Australia who run the event, it's always about how can we make things better? How can we tinker with it to improve the experience for everyone, not just the players, of course, but the media who come but and the fans who come from all over the world to, to sample this great event. And as I say, it's it's more than just the tennis. The tennis is obviously the focus, but... There's so much other stuff that's happening to bring fans into the game. And if they're casual observers to tennis and it gives them a chance to see some top-level tennis, then I think that's a good thing. And obviously looking after the young kids so that the um, young kids who are tossing the coin, they're part of the Hot Shots program, keeping them involved. Clubs had an opportunity to get involved as well. So, you know, it's that all-round sort of approach. And it is a fantastic sight. It is the atmosphere... It's like a party happening here. I think all four slams have a particular flavour to them. Um, but, you know, this is the thing. They won't be sitting back now and going, OK, well, we're going to stay like this for the next couple of years. They're going to think of ways to make it bigger and better into the future. More redevelopment to come as well. So stand by. It's going to keep getting better and better. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think, uh, you know, it's. It, I don't like to compare all of the slams against each other because I think they do all have their own uh, unique flavour, as you say. Uh, but there's no question that over the years since I've come back here to the Australian Open, it is absolutely magnificent now. I mean, the, you know, the press and media facilities and the broadcast facilities are extraordinary. Some of the best food, I have to say, um, you know, <laughs> for, for the media, some of the healthiest, most delicious food. I think, you know, the atmosphere around the grounds with the Garden Square, absolutely rocking and packed, you know, with wonderful deck chairs and that big screen where you can hear the commentary, you know, just an amazing place to hang out. You know, I quite often fancied, I thought if I wasn't broadcasting, I'd quite like to go and hang out there with a beer and just enjoy myself. And then, you know, around the grounds, you know, amazing court facilities where people can hang out and watch them practice, you know, all those lovely bowl effects, all the different uh, courts, the Margaret Court Arena, the new, I think it's called 15... 36, was it? 1573 oh, Arena. Well, 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 I didn't quite get it right. That was always quite difficult to remember the name of that one. But, um, you know, all of the arenas, just amazing. And the fact that they've got, you know, roofs on them. And and as you say, there was a party atmosphere. There was Bastille actually playing one night, which I was a bit disappointed I was commentating. So I wasn't able to go and hear them because they're one of my favourite bands. But just an incredible atmosphere throughout the whole, um, you know, area. And I think people have a wonderful experience when they come here. So there's no question it has raised its game big time here in Australia. 
Well, we take stock of uh, the first slam. It has been a, a tremendous uh, fortnight and great to uh, have uh, your thoughts, guys. But of course, uh, the tennis circus uh, quickly moves on and it moves on to Davis Cup because at the end of uh, this coming week, Friday and Saturday, we're going to have the um, 12 new qualifiers now for the, the finals to come later in the year at the end of the season in Madrid. Of course, four countries, the uh, Croatia, France, Spain and USA, already through there with Argentina and Great Britain given wild cards into that. But we are going to have 12 ties on the, the 1st and 2nd of February in the Davis Cup competition. Of course, it's going to be revamped with only best of three sets and only two days play rather than the traditional three. It is home and away for this. But Peter, I know Australia are clearly involved. And despite Leighton Hewitt's um, you know, very vocal uh, criticisms of the changes that David Haggerty and the ITF have made to the event. Uh, he is going to be captaining Australia at home to uh, Bosnia in Adelaide. Yeah, beautiful, sunny Adelaide. I don't know what the weather's going to be like, but they can get up to 45 degrees. So I'm not sure what the weather forecast is at the moment. But yeah, it's going to be an interesting tie, this one. And for all the the stuff that's been going on in the background with uh, Tomic and Kyrgios and the war of words going backwards and forwards. It's actually quite a, a strong team that we've got. Alex Dimonor, uh, John Millman, Alexi Popperin, Jordan Thompson, and of course, John Pierce for the doubles. So, you know, there's plenty of options there for Leighton to choose from. They're all informed players. You've got uh, on the, the Bosnia Herzegovina side, Dimitri Mer leads their team. You would suspect that you know, the Australians would have the edge playing at home. But, you know, this new format might provide, throw up a few anomalies along the way with the best of three sets as opposed to the best of five sets. I know there's going to be a big crowd there over the weekend. And, you know what, I'm willing to give this a try. I know all the talk has been largely negative about the changes, but I'm willing to give it a year, see how, see what works, see what doesn't, and then make an assessment from there. Baza, what do you make of it? Well, just to reiterate what Peter said, see how it goes, give it a try. Um, but I, I think the disappointment is that some of the nations haven't got their best players playing. The Czechs haven't got Burdick, yes. Switzerland haven't got Federer or Vavrinka, Belgium haven't got Goffin, Raonic is not playing for, for Canada. So I think what will also be interesting is, of course, they have the rule previously in Davis Cup that you have to play a um, certain amount of Davis Cup ties to be considered to play the Olympics. I think, I guess, watch that space um, because it's Olympic year next year. And Annabelle, um, a thought from you on that and, of course, the Fed Cup that follows uh, quickly behind it. Yeah, I mean, I'm sort of intrigued by all the goings on politically, really. I mean, uh, I'm, ex- I- I'm still excited about Davis Cup. I know everybody else is saying, oh, it's, it's dead and buried and where is it going? But, um, you know, I-, I hope it does survive, to be honest, because I think when something's been around that long and it has so much prestige from the past and so much history, you want to see something like that keep going. I know it had to be revamped, but um, I do hope that uh, players do commit to it and it can somehow manage to have a little bit more longevity and it can keep going. But uh, yeah, in terms of the Fed Cup, wow, how exciting that certainly Britain are going to be hosting a tie, aren't they, in Bath coming up quite soon. And, um, you know, we've certainly got players that are starting to, well, we hope that they can come and bring their best tennis out and we can you know, get something going with some home support. So, yeah, plenty to look forward to in that department. Certainly more excitement for me, Indeed. Barry, to see home and away ties this week as opposed to in Madrid at the end of the year. 
I would absolutely agree with that. And um, we will, in fact, talking of Fed Cup, be uh, talking to um, Colin Fleming, won't we, uh, very shortly. He will be with us, I think, on our next podcast. We'll be looking back at the weekend of Davis Cup uh, next Monday when we uh, do this again and then looking ahead to uh, what will be a a fascinating tie in uh, Bath with uh, Great Britain hosting a whole group uh, just below the world group to see whether they can finally uh, get through further than they've managed for many a year but we must uh, thank our guests Uh, Peter thank you very much once again for your uh, contributions Uh, glad to know that uh, they kept you busy out there in Melbourne and Annabelle too it's lovely to hear from you you. Uh, we know you've had a very busy fortnight you've got to make a a long journey home but (laughs) safe travels and uh, Baza thank you once again uh, to everybody listening thanks for joining us and we'll be back with another tennis takeaway for you in a week's time Thank you.